I'd like you to turn, first of all, to the second book of Samuel, chapter 23. Second Samuel 23, I'll read the first seven verses. And this is to give us a sense of how ancient is this concern for the character of our leadership. Second Samuel 23, verses 1 through 7, after which we'll come to our sermon text for today and for the next few weeks probably, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Beginning then with 2 Samuel 23. This is the word of God. Now these are the last words of David. David the son of Jesse declares, the man who was raised on high declares, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises. A morning without clouds. And the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after rain. Truly is not my house so with God, for he has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and secured for all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not indeed make it grow? But the worthless, every one of them will be thrust away like thorns because they cannot be taken in hand. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear and they will be completely burned with fire in their place. And now we come to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The Apostle Paul writes, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And... He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. 
Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us insight into the character that you require of the men who lead your people. We thank you that you have given us in our Lord Jesus Christ the supreme example. And we pray that you would give us leaders who emulate him, in whom we can see some sparkle, some hint and glint and glimmer of the radiant glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Give us understanding of these things in the message before us today and those that will follow in coming weeks and prepare this congregation for the calling and election, installation, ordination of the man of your choosing. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Signing off a letter that's addressed to the Hebrew Christians of his day, the Lord's Apostle reminds them, and so reminds us, to obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this, he says, with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Inasmuch as we've begun seeking the Lord's will regarding my eventual successor as your pastor, today we start a brief miniseries on the biblical qualifications for elder. And I want to emphasize here at the outset that in the final analysis, each one of us bears the primary responsibility before God for the care and feeding of his own soul. Each one of us does. The things that you read in your own time, the things you watch, the things you listen to, the things you pay attention to, these are the things by which you are feeding your soul. each and every day, and in the spiritual realm, just as surely as in the medical and dietary realm, the old adage holds true, you are what you eat. So each one of us is going to give an answer to God for what we take into our own respective hearts and homes and minds, and for what we keep out. The innermost circle of rule and authority in the world, the innermost circle isn't Presbyterian rule, but self-rule. And the first court of discipline is self-discipline. That much I need to emphasize here at the beginning, that your first duty and mine as professing servants of the Lord Jesus Christ is to watch over our own souls, taking responsibility for our own growth toward maturity, in Christ. Among other things, this means personal commitment to our regular immersion in these means of grace before us, the word, the sacraments, and prayer. Now having said that, 
Given the blindness and depravity of fallen human nature, all of fallen human nature, given the fact that the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick, given our natural inclination toward blame-shifting and excuse-making for our own weakness and failures, even as recovering sinners who are saved by grace, we still fall into this. Given these things... What a mercy it is that the sovereign Lord of the church, that great shepherd of the sheep, has appointed within his church mature Christian men to help guide and teach and correct us. Mature men who shepherd the flock not as though the flock were their own possession, their own personal possession to govern as they like, as autocrats or as tyrants, but as faithful stewards of another man's sheep. The God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. These mature men appointed by the owner, Christ, to oversee the healthy growth of his flock, they go by various titles in the New Testament. And though I won't go very far into making a case for it here, that'll have to wait for another time, I do need to say that a study of these various titles for elder in the New Testament shows them to be the very same office described in different terms. What I want to do today is merely to consider these titles for the office of elder and then look at the one personal characteristic or trait that seems to loom largest in the mind of the Apostle Paul. The one that comes at the head of a very long and searching list of qualifications for the ruling or the teaching elder. But first of all, the titles. What does the New Testament call these men appointed to shepherd the flock of the Lord Jesus Christ? The first title we find for them in the New Testament is the title Elder, or in Greek, uh, the Greek equivalent, Presbyter. Presbyter. Now, Jewish synagogues, ever since the age between the Old and New Testaments, Jewish synagogues had their quorum of at least ten elders. But in Acts 11, verse 30, we find that title ascribed for the very first time in Scripture, specifically to elders not in the synagogue, but elders in the church, in the Christian church. In view of a coming famine, the church in Antioch sent a gift by Barnabas and Saul to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. The Greek word for elder is presbyteros. So if you ever wondered why it is we are called a Presbyterian church, there's your answer. It's because we are a church governed by old men. Presbyters, which of course is a concept that is ridiculously out of touch with mainstream modern thinking government of a church by old men? 
But what a blessing it is to be out of that cultural mainstream. Because if you read your New Testament, you'll find this to be the clearly stated will of God in this matter of church government. He doesn't entrust the care, the spiritual care of his church into the hands of callow young men who don't have any of the seasoned wisdom and experience of, that comes with life. And he doesn't put the care of his church, his beloved bride, into the hands of women of any age. He puts her in the joint care and custody of wise, experienced, mature, seasoned, old men, presbyters. A second title by which the Holy Spirit designates this very same office is the one Paul uses not only here in 1 Timothy 3, but also in his letter to Titus, chapter 1, verse 7. This title highlights not so much the man's age and life experience as it does his role and function in the church. It's the title overseer or even bishop, as it's translated in, uh, in many versions of the Bible. The Greek word is episkopos, episkopos, which is a term that might have conjured up in the minds of Greek-speaking, the, the Greek-speaking church of the first century. It might have conjured up the image of a shepherd sitting up on a high promontory, overlooking the green veil down below in which the sheep were grazing. Now, why is the shepherd, why do you suppose he is sitting up there over the sheep? It's not to keep him away from the sheep. It's not to make him inaccessible to the flock. He's raised up higher to give him a good, clear view that the sheep don't necessarily have as they're down there in the green pastures, eating, grazing, and going about their daily business. He's sitting up there in his office as overseer to keep an eye on them, to keep the flock safe from predators. And as he's sitting up there, and you glance up at him as a sheep, you glance up at him, uh, you know that he has his slingshot with him. And you know that he knows how to use it. Now, I'm not talking about a literal slingshot, but I'm talking about the censures of the church. Church discipline. This is why the elders of the church have sometimes gone by the title reverent. Did you know that? To revere someone is to fear him. And elders in the church have sometimes gone by the title reverend. It's because at least insofar as the ravening wolves are concerned, at least as far as the coyotes and so forth are concerned, the infiltrators, the false teachers, as far as they're concerned, these men are men to be feared 
these men of peace, your elders, can be fierce men. And should be ready at the moment of danger to contend for the purity, peace, unity, and progress of the church. The Lord Jesus entrusts the office of overseer to experienced men who need the advantage of perspective, not for their own benefit, but for the welfare of Christ's flock. This is precisely the point that Paul made at that elders' conference that he called in Miletus toward the end of his third missionary journey. In Acts 20, we find that from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Now, the Holy Spirit had shown Paul that he wasn't going to see these men ever again. I don't know how he knew, except he says to them, the Holy Spirit has shown it to me. You will not see my face again. So that being in the background, what is Paul's solemn charge to these presbyters? These presbyters he's never going to see again. His his charge to them is just this from verse 28 of Acts 20. He says to them, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. A third title the Holy Spirit in the New Testament gives these men is the title shepherd or its Latin equivalent pastor. All of your elders are pastors, shepherds. And the Greek word is poimen, poimen. This man's experienced in the Christian life, as we've seen, and he's raised to office for the safety and security of Christ's flock. And in that office, his function is to shepherd the sheep. He feeds them the word of God. He leads them. He guides them into the paths of righteousness, those ancient paths, those good old ways of which Jeremiah spoke in his sixth chapter. He offers them doctrine that's nourishing. He offers them a manner of life that is safe for them. That's the work to which Peter in his first letter exhorted the elders of the church who were scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, when he said, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory.
this role that the elders have, this role of proving to be examples to the flock, serves as a convenient segue now from the elders' titles that we've been discussing to his personal traits. Because very clearly, not just any man can do this. Not even just any old man can do this. There are men, even in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, men both young and old, whose personal example, if it might be learned from at all, might serve best as a negative example. Sadly, there are men in the church who are negative examples. Men that wise Christian parents warn their children about to their sons. Don't be like Mr. So-and-so. To their daughters, don't date Mr. So-and-so or anyone like him. He drinks too much or he's a freeloader, or he can't seem to hold a job, or he's a busybody, or a sluggard. You know he is because you pass by his house every day, and you see what condition it's in. Don't be like Mr. So-and-so. The elder of the Lord Jesus Christ, on the other hand, as he oversees and cares for the flock of God, must prove himself to be an example to the flock, and I mean a positive example. Whenever you're with him, his life and ministry ought to be some fleeting suggestion to you, some dim reminder, however imperfect, of the character of the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul goes to great lengths to spell out both to Timothy in Ephesus and Titus on the island of Crete. He goes to great lengths to spell out for them exactly what kind of old men to appoint to this office. He lists traits, characteristics. And you've already noted, at least with respect to 1 Timothy, they're long lists. You might call them checklists, and some churches have used them that way. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think of them rather as many overlapping brush strokes by which Paul is painting a man's portrait, much as the psalmist does in Psalm 15, which we'll be singing in a few minutes. The things that Paul emphasizes in both lists to Timothy and to Titus they're instructive either by their relative position in the list or by their repetition or restatement in one way or another. Today, unfortunately, we only have time to consider the first of these traits, the first and the foremost, because it appears in that first position in both lists, that to Timothy and that to Titus. To Timothy, there in Ephesus, he writes, it is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. And then to Titus, 
few years later on the island of Crete, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, So the elder before anything else is a man above reproach. Whatever his physical stature may be, in a spiritual and moral sense, he stands tall among his peers because whatever reproaches he might once have rightly borne have now by grace received through faith fallen squarely upon Christ. There was a transfer in this man's life and experience. At some point, there was a transfer of one man's guilt with another man's righteousness. Christ carried the guilt of those reproaches to the cross, and he paid full price for them. And in so doing, erased God's record of them. That man's sins are forgotten before God. There is no condemnation for this man in Christ Jesus. God remembers those sins against him no more. Those are the forensics or the legal imputational aspects of this man's justification before God. But the Holy Spirit now, having found a place to rest in this man's redeemed heart, there are actual observable changes as well that place this man above reproach, not only in the eyes of God, but even in the eyes of men. This man becomes more Daniel-like in that his residual faults become harder to find even for fault finders. Or rather, by grace, he becomes more like Christ himself. Because in regard to his old nature, that old man, this son of Adam daily wrestles that old man to the ground in the all-consuming daily effort to mortify and kill him. So that Christ, the new man, might now reign in his stead. There's just one more thing before we leave this first and fundamental trait of the rightful shepherd of Christ's church. There are, as I suggested before, some traits that are so important, so pregnant with meaning, that a single word scarcely covers it. This is just the way it is in the matter of a man's being above reproach. Although that's the way our New American Standard Bible translates it, both uh, translates the Greek in both 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, and Titus 1, 7, Paul actually uses a different word in each case. To Titus, he uses a word, anenkletos, that suggests this man cannot be charged with any crime. He cannot be charged. To Timothy, he uses a different word, 
and a more difficult word, an epilemton, an epilemton, which struck me as an unusual word until I realized that it's a compound word that with all of its component parts put together means that this man isn't on the take. He isn't on the take. Now, what does that mean? It means that, like that man of Psalm 15 we're soon going to be singing about, this man can't be bribed. He can't be bought. For any price. Do you know how rare such a man was back then when Paul wrote? particularly on the island of Crete. Do you know how rare such a man is today? Dear ones, the world doesn't make men like this. The world scratches its collective head in wonder at men who can't be bought. They scratch their head in wonder because Christ makes them and then he gives them to his church. They're among the gifts of the risen, ascended, and reigning Christ. Let's work and pray to find them and call them and ordain them and install them. That's what we need to do. That's application one. But more than that, Let this congregation and its families, you, families, let us work to become the fertile seedbed for the raising of many godly young men to become in time, through the seasoning of time and study and experience, who will become godly old men and faithful pillars of the church in their own generation. No one's better expressed the blessed outcome of such a wholehearted endeavor and the closing verses of Psalm 144. The psalm that starts out talking about a fight. Blessed be the Lord by rock who trains my hands for war. It begins. It ends this way. How blessed are the people who are so situated. How blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Let that be our effort as parents today, that we might have sons and daughters growing to full maturity and strength in the Lord, each bearing his own weight, carrying his own load in his own roles and responsibilities in life, in the home, in the church, and in society. How blessed are such a people. Amen. I promised you Psalm 15 a little while ago, so now let's turn to that in our Psalters, Psalm 15, and we'll sing Selection A. A psalm that is a portrait to us of the Lord Jesus Christ and those who aspire to Christ's likeness. Psalm 15. 
Selection A. Let's rise together to sing. Father, we thank you that down through the ages you have given your church men who have shepherded the flock in the name and by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have not forsaken or abandoned your church to the wolves, to the coyotes, to the predators that would pollute her, that would teach her falsehoods, that would Take advantage of her. Thank you for placing over your church and within your church elders who have guarded, protected, taught, fed, cared for the beloved bride of Christ. We thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you that we can trust you for the leadership of your church into the future for generations and generations. We do pray that your blessing would be upon our families, that they might be little seminaries, little seed beds for the kingdom of God, and that out of our sons and daughters, you would be raising the church of the future, that you would be raising 
among our sons, those who will in their day serve the people of God as elders, as deacons, as teachers, as missionaries. Grant this, we pray, for your glory into the future and for our good today. The parents might be encouraged, the children might be taught, trained, and blessed. Grant these things, we pray, for the sake of the kingdom of God and his king, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now receive God's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you all and give you peace. Amen.